Hey everybody. Today Matthew Reagan joins me for a beer here at the Lumen Labs. We talk all about his life and career in the world of projection mapping. He's a touch designer wizard who started out doing live performance at Keene State back in the early 2000s. Then during his master's program at Arizona State, he hosted a popular touch designer tutorial vlog. Working closely with derivative software, he developed a host of teaching materials geared at educating a new generation of users in advanced techniques. His vlog and expertise ended up catching the attention of the guys over at Obscura Digital, who scooped him up right out of school. He's worked with them for the past few years, recently taking on the role of their lead software developer. Anybody who's paying attention to the world of projection mapping knows how important Obscura is to the scene and how they've raised the bar for new media installations in places all around the world. Matt takes us through his time working there, and we talk about how the makers of a tool help to define the art that gets made, and how that cycle defines our industry. It's a great episode with a legend in the scene. I think you'll like it. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll start with how how do we meet each other? Do we meet each other through uh, Joe T? Uh, I feel like we met each other... My most concrete memory is when we were both at the airport at LDI. Oh my god. Yeah, that's we exactly were like, how that get happened. the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were like both flying back to Oakland, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny too because I remember during that LDI, that's when you and Joe T were were uh, you guys were doing touch designer projects. Mm-hmm. Um, or you were like teaching her how to use touch designer. And um, she was like, Oh yeah, Matt Reagan, I've been uh, I've been taking lessons from him, and I'm like, oh, that's the guy from uh, from Obscura. She's like, yeah, totally. And she's like, I think he's going to be at LDI. I'm like, really? And then I distinctly remember at LDI, um, I like saw you, and I was just like, I bet you that's, I bet you that's the guy from Obscura. <laughs> oh, that's because you had like you were all in black, and of you were just, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I was like in my uniform. That's definitely <laughs> the guy from Obscura. Actually, no, 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 no. The year before that, at at um, LDI, you were there too, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because I met you and Zoe on the floor. Right, right. That's right. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Because that was the year. So that year we taught a workshop that was like uh, two days long, and then I think that was the year that Disguise was doing their robot demo. Yeah. And then like yeah. it, it like didn't work and didn't work and didn't work. I think it worked finally on like the last day of the show so I actually I never remember. saw it I didn't see it either no every time I went by they're like it's not working right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like oh that's like the worst that's my deepest fear for a demo is it's just like not working and there are people waiting to see it well funny story you know um I don't know if you'd been to, to LDI in years previous, but the way that D3, right? It's so hard right. for me to call them these guys. I'm like, yeah, it's fucking D3. But uh, the way that they broke into LDI was they, instead of doing like a booth on the floor, they rented that penthouse suite and they would just go, you know, they would all fan out on the floor and they would hand out cards <sighs> to only people that they thought were like, quote unquote, cool enough to be, you know, to, to bring to their penthouse suite. And they just circumvented the whole conference thing. Oh, and they, they circumvented the, the fees and like the, all that shit and like the drama of the floor. And they were able to hand pick just the right people to come to their booth, which was the penthouse suite at the Hard Rock. Right. <laughs> and I remember when I saw that, I was just like, man, these guys are badasses. 
because that, that is clever. That is the perfect way to do it. They got in big trouble. They were like, the conference was like, you, you guys, what the hey, fuck are you doing? Hey, stop it. <laughs> yeah, stop exactly. It. No, they're like, hey, well, we happened to rent a play. You know, we happened to rent a suite at the Hard Rock during the conference. Oh, what? <laughs> We yeah. bought our floor passes. Fine. Come on. <laughs> oh. That's hilarious. That's an interesting company, man. It's uh, They came out of uh, UVA, mm-hmm. United Visual Artists. Yep. You know those guys like Chris Bird? Yeah. Because yeah. they're... Uh, I, like, I took one of their trainings and... I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up their history, so nobody quote me about the history of their their development. <laughs> We're all gonna quote you. <laughs> <laughs> no, what have I done? Uh, but it was like I think they used to be called something like Dragonfly. No, Mosquito. What was called Mosquito? So disguise. If you rewind, was something. I think it was Mosquito, and then it became Dragonfly, and then it became Dragonfly Three, and then it became D Three, and then it rebranded as Disguise. That's funny, man. Because I actually I didn't know that. I only knew it as D three, but Chris and uh, the other guy I can't remember his name, but the other the other partner, right? Ash. Yeah, when I, I used to work at uh, at um, Excel Video. Okay. In in L A. And I remember I was like the media server tech there, right? And when I yeah, I was working there, and they came in to do a tech demo for the D3 server. And I don't remember at that point if it was called D3 or Dragonfly or what, but they came in, and I remember them showing off their system to my bosses, and my bosses just laughed. They were like, guys, this is this is, this is is a nifty toy you've built, guys, but no one's ever going to buy this. Oh, famous no one last words. Dude, it, it's, <laughs> you know, Excel... Uh, shortly after they they kind of like hemorrhaged um, they they lost their their lead sales guy um, and the company just like split apart and exploded and it was it was a total it was a fracture over ego oh um, <laughs> John Weissman was the guy's name, and he was one of those big personality, you know, um, very cool, but he definitely, like, owned that shit. And he was responsible for all the sales at Excel, uh, all the tours and everything. He got in some some kind of argument with the owners of of the company, and he was just like, fine, fuck you guys, I'm going to go make my own company. And he just split off, made his company called Chaos Visuals or something, and everybody like literally half the staff and all of the business followed him out the door <laughs> and oh my god well it was a, it was a lesson on how things worked for me i was just like wow you know this is really all about personalities people. it's all about people yeah yeah doesn't matter it's like great excel video it's a big name it's like no it's really about this one guy who formed relationships with all of their clients and all their employees that's like i feel like one of the best lessons i ever heard uh, from a designer, another designer friend, instructor, I guess, uh, was that I was like taking this class that was all about uh, collaborative styles and how you work together and design teams. Yeah. And Connie used to say, play nice in the sandbox. Like the number one rule you can have as a designer is to learn how to play nice in the sandbox. Yeah. Well, it's too small a world not to, man. Yeah. Like if you piss off somebody or if you botch a gig or if you... <laughs> Botching a gig happens to everybody, 
right? But if you act like a shithead... Oh, it's like... It's you over. just make it worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like no one... In the end, you want to work with people who are cool. Yeah. Right? And it's like the, 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 the bar, I find, for, for us, it's like I would rather... Um, work with somebody who has a lower skill level but is much more fluid in in their interactions and their like you know what I mean like I want to work with people who are cool is what it comes down to yeah, yeah. someone that you want to hang out with yeah. not someone you're like oh god fuck it's this guy oh, okay <laughs> fine yeah uh, yeah I think that's that's like a small industry thing yeah right 100% yeah I don't know if that's I don't know if that's universally true but in all of the of all of the the companies that I've worked for and in all of the the groups that I've worked with that's how it's been yeah I think that definitely from like from the obscure days I think that's true Listen to you, the obscure days. The obscure days, back in the olden days. Back in the days. Oh my god, it's like it's hilarious to me to think about that because it's uh, it's like a year and a half since the acquisition, but like it reminds me that when I was first doing this work, we used to we threw all kinds of shit at my advisor because he, his approach for how to do projection mapping was you'd like you'd open up Photoshop and from Photoshop you would full screen your application, you'd map it out. So you like you'd full screen Photoshop, you'd open it up, uh, you'd like make a, a rough map, then you pull that back into Premiere, After Effects, whatever you're doing your editing in. Yeah. You did the distortion there, and then you'd output your files. Yeah. And we used to be like, oh, that's the old way of doing it. I was like, okay, the, by the old way, do you mean like the way that we've done it for like three years? <laughs> like, <laughs> the old way. The old way. Oh, well, the old way of doing this is to map it with Photoshop, but now we use geometry. <laughs> okay. Man, it's so funny because I, I definitely came into projection mapping maybe one generation after that, right? But there's a lot of people that... Um, you know, like Vela Verkhaus, right, was telling me um, about mapping back in the day when he was doing it. And uh, yeah, it was all about Photoshop After Effects and doing like distortion warps within Photoshop. Yeah. Excuse me. And uh, yeah, it's like, wow, man. We used to build these like crazy ass comps where you'd, you'd bake all of your distortion into one layer of your After Effects composition. So then you could work only in flat art in Photoshop and then do a pass of it through uh, After Effects. So it would automate all of the distortion for you. Yeah. So you'd have like these like comps in comps and comps to try and handle all the masking, all of the distortion, and then all of the other weird shit that would happen. I love nested comps, oh my man. God. The, and then the someone days would move something on a set, and you'd be like, fuck, why? <laughs> why did you do that? Yeah, man, that's that's funny. It's um, It makes you wonder, right? It makes you wonder, and I guess this is true of any art form, but the tool defines the art in that it defines the possibilities. It defines the boundaries, of what your art form can be. And then the artist defines the innards of that 
so so it's really it's this collaboration right between the toolmaker and and the artist and I think that um, well in your case you know you're uh, you developed your own tool more or less I mean I know Obscura was doing it before you got there mm-hmm. yeah but you came in and you definitely took that and ran with it and then that basically you became the artist and the toolmaker which is really it defines that's that's how you really have control over your art form that's a weird place because you you very quickly get in this like messy place where you're like do i spend my time making tools or do i spend my time making art do i spend time only to make the tool uh well enough for what i need to do do i plan ahead for like how i want to use this in the future and it can be really easy to lose yourself in only the tool making or only the art making i was just gonna say we we I definitely know people who, you know, it's like they're the the tool makers and their art is the making of the tool, which Perfectly is perfectly crafted. They, yeah, tool. yeah. Which is cool. But I, like, I find a lot of um, that's the danger with um, like your touch designer or Max MSP, those types of, of environments, right? Where it's like it, it, the majority of the really proficient people that I know in those platforms are tool makers, mm. right? They, they're master tool makers, you know? Mm. And um, it's rare to find people like yourself who have um, managed to be proficient at making those tools and being in that environment and are making compelling art and, and beautiful things with those tools. Yeah, it's like foot in both worlds, right? Yeah. It's it's very common to see, you know, people who make amazing tools, amazing, like, crazy complex comps. But the stuff that comes out of it's like, yeah, that's cool, but it's not really visually compelling or it doesn't, it's not attractive to me, you know? Like, Yeah. All right. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Rad. That's rad. Yeah. See where you're going there. It's a weird space. And I think that's like... These days, the the landscape is weirder all the time. Like I look at the explosions in Unity, Unreal, and Notch, and uh, you name it, Touch, Open Frameworks, Cinder. Like there is this ever expanding landscape of platforms, libraries, and approaches, and it's how. Like if I think I think now about like if I was to jump into this field today, how do you get your bearings? Where do you like where do you plant a flag and where do you decide that you're gonna start exploring and dig in? Yeah. Because there's a thousand things to choose from. Well, you just gotta choose one. I think there's um you just I think a lot of people choose their tool based on um what they went to school for, right? Mm-hmm. And then they take that. I don't know how you got into touch, but like for me, I definitely, I got trained in After Effects. You know, I grew up using Photoshop and then I took those and then I, I got really into VJing. So then my focus turned to like the VJ real-time playback apps. Um, at that point it was like, uh, what was it? 
it was the OG Resolins. Modulate? No, I don't know. Modulate happened after. After? Oh, my God. There was, there was Resolune back in the day. Before Resolune became, like, a polished thing, it was this other thing, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, and then that led me into media servers and, and blah, blah, blah. But it's, um, you know, those those tools defined how I thought about art and how I thought about, um, you know, the, the, the art that I was making. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... I don't know. I've got big grumbles. I'm, I feel like a grouchy old man sometimes. How so? Uh, well, because... So one of the pieces that's been interesting for me about my journey with touch is that it's it's opened up ways for me to understand what's Python, what's object-oriented programming, what's, sh- what's writing the shader language, how do you write a fragment shader, how do you write, write a vertex shader. So it's been this incremental unveiling of the pieces that make up that environment, and it's felt like at every step of the way, I've gotten to peek like a little bit further behind the curtain and understand, you know, you know, why is this filter in Photoshop called add? Why is this called multiply? What's the right. underlying mathematics that's manipulating and driving that? Why is this thing fast and this thing slow? Yeah. And I feel like the danger sometimes that we encounter with turnkey tools is that it's there's just a checkbox mm-hmm. or a drop-down menu and you don't really understand or you're not invited to really interrogate what's going on underneath that. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of touch designer is that it's uh, it allows you to play with like beautiful math. Right. right? <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's that's the that's that's the whole point is and that's that's the draw. So you can really like dive down in and you can get like really down deep and you can do whatever the fuck you want. Which is honestly a huge problem for, I think, a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's like, yeah, do whatever you want. It's like, uh, well. (laughs) Oh, my God. I remember when I started, there was like, you just, Touch has plenty of guardrails. It has more guardrails now than it used to, but. This is more popular. Yeah, right. Exactly. You need to to make sure that that you don't crash because you ran out of memory because you're allowed to do whatever you want. And there were so many times that I would... I'm just like, why am I just... Why am I crashing this? Oh, right. I'm out of VRAM. I'm just like spilled into page and then I just died. Okay, cool. Yeah. I get it. Fine. And like, it really revealed to me the the precarity of writing an application is that like it's the world's dangerous out there you're allowed to crash your computer fine go ahead do whatever you want be reckless this is a dangerous world (laughs) oh man alright you silly little contraption so how did this so you you went to school at first in was it in New Hampshire? no I was uh, I did uh, my I started back in the old days. Uh, I went to a junior college in uh, Lompoc, which is my hometown, and then Santa Maria. Um, and that's what? That's SoCal? Yeah, Central Coast. It's like about an hour north of Santa Barbara. Okay. And so I was there. Uh, I did a... Uh, what do they call that? The transfer studies, I think, is the official name for it, which was essentially in the junior college system. It was like all of your first and second year undergraduate requirements. Mm-hmm. 
So I did all that. I thought I was going to be an English teacher for a stretch. And then I thought I was going to be so, a graphic wow, you designer. Were, you were way off. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to teach English. No, I want to be a graphic designer. <laughs> and uh, I had been an actor in high school. And I was like, at some point, I just like hit a wall and was like, you know, whatever. Fuck it. I'm going to go and I'm going to get a degree in acting. Mm-hmm. So then I went to Fresno State uh, for my bachelor's degree. And I was focused entirely on uh, performance. So I was an actor and a dancer. Interesting. And so it was after I graduated there where I had this moment. I was like, what am I going to do with myself? Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, was in, I was planning on auditioning for grad programs. Uh, like theater-based MFA programs um, and then professional training programs and it got a car accident. You got in a car accident. Yeah, I stopped at a light. I was like actually headed to a show that I was performing in and another... I, my joke at the time was that I got shot with a Jeep Cherokee because <laughs> it was, you know, on a straightaway in Fresno where the speed limit's like 50 miles an hour. Dude. And this Jeep Cherokee rear-ended me. Oh, my God. I hit, I hit another car, that car, another car. I spun across three lanes. This, like, little Honda Civic that I was driving, like, exploded all over the fucking road. Oh, my God. I, luckily, I was totally fine, except freaked the fuck out. Oh, sure. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I was like, I still remember, like, I got in the car accident, and my first three phone calls, the first person I called was my stage manager. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I'm very sorry to call you, but I'm not going to be at the show this evening. Wow. And then I called my mother, and I was like, hey, check it out. I'm okay, but this thing just happened. You have to preface any conversation like that with your mom. Right. Like, hey, <laughs> I'm okay. Hey, but- I'm okay, <laughs> but... There was this small incident, and then I called the person I was seeing at the time, and I was like, um, could you maybe come pick me up? Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, my car has exploded on the road. <laughs> and I just totally had it together. Everything was totally all right. I was very serious and focused. Yeah. Like, got the tar, the tar, got the car towed, and, like, left. And it was, like, at that moment where it all hit me, and I just totally fell apart. It was just like, oh, my fucking God, what happened? Yeah. Yeah, man. Being in a car crash is, uh, it's, like, instant adrenaline, and then that fades and then you're a mess right then you're like okay I'm alive I'm alive Ah." (laughs) yeah yeah I've been in one car accident and it was yeah it was like a similar experience where I just got like slammed from the back and uh I looked behind me and the dude's car was like destroyed. I was in like a uh, like a like a Subaru Outback station wagon. And it was like old green. Yeah. Like Nineteen ninety eight. Oh yeah, yeah. Edition. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, "Fuck, man!" And I like got out, went back, and like my car was fine. And there was oh, a man. cop trailing us, so it was just like, I was like, "Man, that really sucks." I'm sorry. Wow, that's wild. <laughs> the car was fucked. Yeah. Oh. And you're gonna have to pay for mine. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So that happened. And so then... that happened, and then I had this moment where I was like, what am I gonna do? Uh, I was in. An... So I missed one show, but I was in a show that was opening um, the. Uh, in like two months, three months, the next semester, whatever that was. And that happened to line up with a bunch of other auditions. So because of the show schedule I was in, I was going to miss a bunch of other opportunities. Mm. I was like, what do I do? Uh, and I ended up having an interview with a educational outreach program called Upward Bound in New Hampshire. 
uh, and they serve first-generation, low-income, potential college students. Uh, and I'd worked for them one summer, and I was like, you know, when am I going to have an opportunity to move across the country to try out a job and <laughs> see what that's like? To fucking New Hampshire. That's right. So I went to New Hampshire, Keene, New Hampshire. You know that's where I'm from. Get out. <laughs> I swear to God, man. Wow. Not Keene. Dover. Dover! <laughs> oh! Did you go to Las Vegas? No. Just, oh, do- Dover, just Dover. Dover. And then... Uh, Portsmouth. Portsmouth was oh, like yeah. a like a regular frequent stop. That's good. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's funny though. I read that on your, your bio. Oh. I was just like, oh man. <laughs> That's wild. So yeah. So I lived in Keene. I worked with uh, young people, thirteen to eighteen, who were usually the first in their family to go to college. Yep. Um, or came from families of low socioeconomic status. And coached them through the process of applying to college, getting to college. Uh, I was part of a team that ran a residential educational outreach program. So for six weeks every summer, we had somewhere between 70 and 100 uh, 13 to 18-year-olds that would live in the dorms with us for six weeks, five days a week. Yeah. And we ran all of their programming and enrichment. Uh, classes. So you were working for them. You yeah. worked for that college. You wouldn't go in there. You worked for them. I worked for them. them. Yeah. And at that point, was that any kind of, that was not new media at all, was it? No, it was like nowhere close to new media. It was all uh, educational and outreach counseling support. Oh, interesting. So what happened, what was interesting, like turning points for me there was... I, you know, I was a young person. It was like 2006. I was like familiar with this thing that was the internet. Google was like slowly <laughs> the internet. The internet. <laughs> Google was like slowly releasing Google Docs and spreadsheets and Google Sites. Yeah. Facebook was just barely a thing that had opened past colleges and universities, and I was I was just like flabbergasted that all of our materials, outreach, internal coordination all happened on paper. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're kidding me. Like, this is absurd. (laughs) So I I spearheaded a big charge to move us towards uh, using online documents, using wikis, um, leveraging free or readily accessible tools on the web to make sure that we could reach our students and then streamline some of how we worked. Kicking and screaming into the digital Yeah, come on, get over here. (laughs) Uh, And then from there, I transitioned over to a program called the Center for Engagement Learning and Teaching, Mm -hmm. which was, instead of working with uh, students, I worked with faculty. So I trained faculty on how to use uh, new technology and web technology. And it was at that point that I really transitioned into doing, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, videography, photography, uh, more digital manipulation. And it was like in this moment in life that I was like, what do I want to do? I was uh, going to a circus school in Brattleboro at the time. I didn't realize you were part of, like, so part of the uh, like performance arts scene. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. I'd like. Uh, I'd done a few productions with Keen. I'd like managed to like sneak into their auditions and like had a few parts that I did there. I worked with uh, Palabalus through the dance program that was housed at Keene State. So I was still performing and acting and then doing circus training and then a circus gig here and there. And I was like, (laughs) 
it was a such, it was like a time in the world when there was before the Affordable Care Act. So I was an hourly employee with no benefits. Yeah, that was way before the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, it was like I remember when I got insurance for the first time. I was just like. Wow. <laughs> Healthcare. I can has doctor? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and so I was just I was trying to figure out like I don't want a gig for the rest of my life. And like I don't want to do a master's program that's gonna leave me asking more of the same questions. Did you know you were gonna go for your master's? I knew I wanted to do a master's program. I like wanted to go back to school and push harder and learn some new things. But I didn't really know what that was, and I felt totally lost. Mm-hmm. And then it was the ISAM tour. Yeah, Bella Burkhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember like following it on online. It was like, this is it. This is what I want to fucking do. Wow, man! So that was the moment that got you into. Yeah, I was like, all right, projection mapping and real time video. Like, I want to do this. Yeah. Let's. All right. This is what I have to do. You have made your career in a very short amount of time, I have to say, man. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's going fast. It's yeah. been it's been weird. Because I remember I was here. I was living in the Bay Area when that all happened. And I had Yeah, I I had known Velo for a long time before that. That was like I worked for Velo back in the day and then I moved here and then I heard about that. I'm just like, oh man, should have should have kept working for Velo. Only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I found a program at Arizona State called Interdisciplinary Digital Media and Performance. Okay, so you saw that, you were like, change direction, going this way. Yeah, I was like, all right, here we go. Yep. Uh, 90 degree hard J turn. Yep. Let's go. That's the, the best The best transitions happen like that. And I just doubled down. I was like, you know, I, I know how to write formulas in Excel. I'd like, I'd done all this like data analysis and I was like, you know, I understand like, you know, the principles of what coding probably looks like. I could you know sure yeah processing was a thing that was like everybody was starting to talk about it's like great all right let's go let's do it so how did you find touch oh you're gonna love this so i was oh i guess it was my first year in my grad program and i got uh, a collaborator of mine dan fine uh scooped me up from a class that he and i were in together he like found me right away and he was like you want to collaborate on a show with me? I was like, yes, I do. I want to do anything and everything. Yeah. And so he pulled me into a show called Bocon that was, man, I was, I went from like, you know, my wing floaties to the deep end of the pool with a weight belt <laughs> in like two seconds, it felt like. Because um, that production had a floor projection from two different overhead projectors bounced off of first surface mirrors a channel of projection that drove a psych on one side of the stage and then we had two wraparound psychs because we did a thrust installation where the action happened on stage and the audience was seated around it yeah and the two wraparound psychs were four channels each so we had like nine channels of projection driven off of a combination of a watch-out media server and then an Isadora media server. Oh, fucking watch-out. I know. Watch-out of all things. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I don't think I'd projection mapped anything in my life before that moment. And all wow, of a sudden, man. I was, like, working on First this production. Show. Yeah, first production. Jesus. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in a new in an arts program, right, in your master's, that's, like, you know, it's uh, very experimental. Yeah. And it's just like, sure, let's do it. 
Go. Jump in with both yeah. feet. So I worked on that production with Dan, and then we were trying to figure out what we were going to do the next semester. Uh, and I was looking at... We'd been using Isadora for that show. And Izzy's rad, super rad tool has changed a lot since back then. Is it then. still going? Yeah, it's still going. Because I remember I'm probably eight years ago, that's when Isadora entered my consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, yeah, this is neat. It's kind of like Max, but next level and more geared towards projection. And It's totally focused on a lot of dance. It's using a lot of dance productions and theatrical productions. And it uses a lot of scene conventions, so you don't have to... The same way you think about setting up a scene or an act is how you think about setting up your media. Um, So it handles a lot of the transition pieces in a way that's uh, sensible for how you think about um, plays and live action shows. It's another example of a tool that helps to... It's a tool that's shaped by an art form that shapes the art form. Exactly. So it was rad, but I wanted I wanted some visuals that were a little more dynamic, responsive, uh, faster performing. And so I decided I wanted to go hard into Quartz Composer, back when Quartz was still a thing that was supported. Yeah, Quartz was great. I was, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. Right. And so we, uh, Dan and I tracked down a faculty member who we wanted to be our uh, advisor on an independent study. And we were like, okay, we want to do this thing. We're going to focus on courts. It's going to plug into this uh, other framework we're using in this way. And this uh, instructor was like, that's cool. But I hear this thing, touch designer, is actually the thing to learn. And I don't really care about uh, courts. So if you change your mind, you come back and find me. Wow. And I was so fucking livid. I was like pissed. I was like, fine. Fuck you. I will learn it by myself. (laughs) And so then I was like, I doubled down. And like, uh, it was only Windows application at that point. So I had, uh, I had this lovely MacBook that I pulled a CD drive out of and added into the hard drive and then dual, boot. du- du- dual booted it yep. uh, and then got it up and running. And the only videos at the time were the MuTeC videos from like 2007 or something. MuTeC videos? Yeah. They were like old uh, tutorial videos from workshops that happened at MuTeC. And so in the background, you hear this sweet bass line from a set that's rehearsing upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just like churned through those. I think I watched the same tutorials like five times or six times trying to understand how to do some simple little thing. Tutorials are definitely... It's it's like you get indoctrinated into the culture of a program. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I love... I, I used to do... Um, I, can't remember, I can't remember the website, but uh, After Effects t- tutorials. I've spent so many hours just going through After Effects tutorials and like... Yeah. That's how you learn a program. Video Copilot. Oh my God. Yeah. Video Copilot. There you go. <sighs> Saved my life so many times. How do we make this comp work? Right. Oh, I need an explosion. <laughs> yeah. I need a crumbling wall. I need it. <laughs> Damn. Yep. So yeah, that's how I found my way to touch was uh, to spite a faculty member that I felt like had slighted me, but they were actually just saying like, Quartz is probably not the future. You should look at something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's smart. He was right. You know, yeah. Hundred uh, percent. And even now, now touch is becoming. Uh, I feel like touch is finally hitting the mainstream. 
Yeah, they're a rocket ship. They're just, like, going nuts. Yeah, well, that and there's a lot of attention on it. I think in no small part because Obscura used it to such success in so many of their projects. Well, and I see see it used by all sorts of different studios now, like places that you would never expect to, to see it pop up. You're like, oh... There you are. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Well, it's a it's a useful tool. It's a very dynamic tool. You can do anything with it. That right. There's that dangerous thing. Like you can do anything with it. So what what do you do? Yeah. I mean, make a lighting console. Do projection mapping. Anything in between. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Be wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the culture has hit critical mass. You know, that's what it was clear to me when I went to the, the Touch Designer Conference in Berlin, because um, it was last year. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was just like, wow, you know, this is, uh, this is like a thing. What's crazy is like, I remember watching, I remember the Facebook help group. God, I like, I jumped in on the Facebook help group when Richard started it uh, a couple, more than a couple. I don't know, six years ago now? Richard is the... Uh, uh, Richard... Oh my god, why can't I think of Richard's last name? Um, Richard's another cat that does a ton of uh, touch tutorials. He was out at Projection Artworks in London. He just recently moved out to uh, Japan. Uh, and he's been in the scene for more than a minute. Oh, wow. Um, but he started this touch group, I think, out of a meetup that happened in London. And it was like, you know, 100 people, 120 people. And then pretty soon it was like 200, and then it was 500. Yeah. And I remember early on, like, I could push pretty hard at answering questions and being a part of the dialogue and contributing. And now it's like, I don't know, more than 5,000 people, 5,000 members. And it's just... You cannot get a word in edgewise. Yeah. Because people are just there to fiercely contribute. Yeah. Like, damn. All right, get it. It's funny to see, like, an online community grow like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I've I've watched the, the, the LEDs are awesome community kind of do that. It was, like, this tiny little nothing of a community, and now it's, like thousands of people it's just like whoa it's crazy who are all these people this was like a bay area led nerd scene you know community online now it's just like you're like whoa okay god right right, cool so you started doing touch designer at asu and you were doing like a bunch of stuff with performance arts right i read what was ars robotica oh my god ars robotica jesus what a crazy endeavor that was so uh i did so in the three years i was at it's funny it doesn't seem like that many projects now but and as a grad student i was like what am i doing because i think in the three years i was at asu I worked on something like 25, 26 productions or installations. Mm-hmm. And that usually meant that the uh, 
Well, our program was structured so that if you were working on a project, it usually meant that you were in some capacity working on the system, hardware, infrastructure design. You were involved in the UI, UX, how it's getting used, what's the experience of the piece, the media design, the installation, the execution, the operation. So it's like you were a team of one. If you were lucky, it might be a team of like three. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ars Robotica was a research project that was co-sponsored between the School of Film, Dance, and Theater and the Center for, so I forget uh, the, their full acronym, but it was Science, Robotics, and Astronomy, I think. Oh, wow, what a combo. Yeah, a huge, like, pure engineering team. Yeah. And they had a, a robot called Baxter. Was, uh, and Baxter, as a product, is a, um, a robotic that runs on uh, ROS, the robot operating system. <laughs> I had no idea that there was a robotic operating system. Yep, there's an open source robot operating system. And uh, Baxter is intended to be your kind of entry point for how do you think about robotics programming and interaction with humans. So it's got this like goofy screen interface that you can put images on or faces on. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got a set of uh, cameras and uh, distance sensors on it. And then it has a few different modes for articulating arms. What's the form factor? Can it like move around on its own? It's positional. So it's, it's stabilized from like the waist down, but it's got uh, articulating joints that are humanoid ish. So a a torso kind of shape. Uh, and then one, two, three, five, a five joint arm. Is that five or six joint arm? Just one. Two. So you've got like this robot that looks slightly humanoid-ish, but is is gigantic. <laughs> and the, uh, the director that I was working with was really interested in how do we understand our relationship to robotics? Uh, what would it mean to have a robot in a performance, in a theatrical play? Uh, how do we interrogate this uncanny valley that we are fast approaching and don't really know how to handle yeah so what we you know on paper when you've never done something every idea seems so simple you're like oh yeah how could how hard could it be yeah we can do that right uh so our idea was we'll uh we'll take a connect We'll track all the joint data from a person. We will uh, translate that onto all the joints of a robot. And we will build a perfect wireless marionette where you, Rob, can control this gigantic robot. It will do whatever you're doing. And then on top of that, we'll add in a layer where we could record your gesture and then recall it. Interesting. So I was in... uh... I was in Bilbao, Spain, and uh, we were doing a conference, and I can't remember the name of the dance troupe, but there's a guy who's doing a very similar thing with drones, and uh, like flying drones, mm-hmm. and what they've done is they've, um, they take spatial data, you know, motion tracking uh, a human, human dancer, and then they mimic that with drones, where each drone um, serves as a, a joint, 
right? Yep. And as you move, these drones mirror your movement. It's very trippy. Oh, that's wild. It's super cool. I like that though. It's the the it's like the examination of the the place where humans and robotics meet. Yeah. You know, exploring the the interaction. Of Absolutely. We had our like big plan. We like we. Uh, gosh, we were so bold. We're like, this will be easy. Um, I mean, every you know, you have to, you have to though, right? Yeah. You have to have big ideas, and you have to just like rush into them, and then believe that it's simple. Figure it out as you go. Yeah. And that's how that's how progress is made. So when we, you know, we're like, you'd be sitting around and like passing the spliff and drinking bourbon and like dreaming big, and what could it be? And our idea was, uh, we'd done a, the, uh, you know, a bunch of the classes that I was in were all focused on computational forms. How do you understand patterns? How do you derive new forms from existing patterns? Mm. You know, the, I think if I was in the same set of courses now, we'd instead be focusing on machine learning and artificial intelligence. I mean, that is the thing. Right. That's like <laughs> the it thing right now. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, it was Markov chains and predictive behaviors and uh, essentially like clusters of robust statistics that would help you make predictive choices. Right. Which is machine learning is like that on... Well, it's the next iteration. It's right. like that exactly. plus... That plus yeah. accelerated structures. Right. So our idea was let's capture a... A library of movements so let's you know the same way that you te- teach a dancer to move mm-hmm. let's catalog a whole subset of training activities so that we know the different types of movements that a person might make and then how could we on the fly assemble new patterns of movement and behavior and essentially teach this robot to, to dance, dance. <laughs> only out of it the assembled pieces yeah yeah exactly it's like alright all right, robot <laughs> here's a bunch of dance moves dance for me <laughs> Baxter so did you uh... we never got to that iteration the, we were very happy to have an iteration where we had a, a robotic form that could mimic the behavior of a person where we could record it play it back and yeah. catalog it yeah yeah so that's uh, Ars Robotica in that first iteration was all focused on how do we do those pieces and then do it in real time yeah and that was you know it was a strangely gratifying activity to stand in front of this robot and all of a sudden it was mirroring everything you were doing that's a little creepy right oh it was super creepy just like whoa man like okay jeez <laughs> bro whatever whatever you say Baxter that's cute <laughs> So was, did you use touch in that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and were you using touch to control the robot? Uh, we didn't use touch to control the robot because we were a collaboration with this other engineering team. I was focused entirely on how do we capture that data, how do we have a representation of that that the user can see, and then how do we pack that information in a way that we can send over to the engineer that was working exclusively with a robot. Yeah. And part of that was because the engineering student was focused on robotics applications and how to interop between different inputs and out- input and output tools. Yeah. So we like it was so funny you know i love moments where you have an idea that you're pretty clear on how to chase it and then you get derailed only could i come back to your first idea Mm -hmm. 
we started out and I, you know, I was telling this engineering student, I'm like, I think we should use open sound control as a format for seeing this data. It's a you know, defined format. It's there's libraries for it. Let's so just great protocol, man. Yeah, let's love OSC. Great, let's use OSC. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No, I don't want to do that. Okay, you don't want to do that. That's for musicians, right? That's that's <laughs> not that's not an engineering solution. Yeah. Okay, fine. So then we spent, I don't know, probably like the next four hours, all dancing around. How do we set up a consistent UDP packet structure to send this information in a a regularized time sequence fashion? We got, we like chase our tails on this. And I was finally like, I literally think we're just defining the same spec that's in OSC. Will you please just like read through the documentation? And this and just poor engineer like grumbles at me. It's like, oh, oh, oh yeah, no, we do want this. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you're fucking kidding me. Yeah. Dude, this, this exists. Let's this not, reinvent, not the wheel. reinvent this. This yeah. is like, this isn't any fun right now. <laughs> we're going so slow. Yeah. I know uh, a guy is um, a, a Frenchman. He writes this cool software called Chatain. Hmm. And the whole thing, it's basically control control protocol manipulation. That's it's, it's a way to timeline, to manipulate, to add math functions to. Um, it's like touch designer-esque, but it's only for control protocol. Hmm. And it's all based around OSC. It, everything it comes back to OSC. You know, they it, it works with uh, with um, DMX and Artnet and and serial ACN, streaming ACN, and um, MIDI. But it all comes back to OSC. That's you know, it's a rock solid framework. I don't know why more, format. I don't know why it's not used more prolifically. It's it's higher resolution than anything else. It is native Ethernet. Native, native over the network. It makes a lot of sense. Easy use. I used. To, I feel like you stay. I'm seeing it more and more. It, what's interesting? I remember this is like you know the conversations that you have with uh, lighting designers, especially like hardcore theatrical lighting designers. Uh, I remember one of my instructors looked at was you know looking at the landscape of media servers and tools and technologies, and they're like. They would shake their heads at me, their head at me, and be like, "Your, your industry is where lighting was 50 years ago. Like you just wait. Like at some point, wait, what? This will stabilize. You'll have consistent formats. Oh, Things will level out. Yeah, I understand. You can agree on standards. Right, right, right. Because it's a wild, like video still feels like it's the wild west. It is the wild west. It's totally the wild west. But that's that's. We're on the tail end of convergence, right? That's what they called that phenomena mm-hmm. when lighting and video met and kind of like had a baby. <laughs> and that's where like media servers are, right? Yep. That's where, you know, when all of a sudden all lighting fixtures became pixels and you had one group had, you know, these two groups, right? You had your video guys and your lighting guys. They had to figure out how to like create a single thing. Yep. And it was a huge deal, man. Like I was going to LDI at that time too. And it was just like, it was like this huge phenomena. <laughs> Disruption to the industry. Yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like, I don't know, the, that space is so weird right now. The, like, screen density is accelerating so quickly. I don't know how we're going to... How we keep up is really complicated. Yeah. And, well, so screen density, that's an interesting topic because I almost feel like it's different, but it's similar to the race for the louder speaker or the brighter light mm-hmm. or the higher res screen. You know, it's like with screen resolution, you need to keep up in terms of uh, video pipeline to, to data pipeline to drive that data to those pixels. But it's still at a certain point, it's like, well, what's the point? You know, it's there's a point until there's no point. Yeah, there's like so many fights. Uh, I did a job uh, with the same collaborator, Dan, uh, in a rock quarry in uh, Connecticut, and you know, of all places, same rock quarry. The granite for the stat, the base of the Statue of Liberty came out of. Rad story. Uh, anyway, piece of history. Right there, there you go. Right, the, take a piece of quarry home with you. Um, <laughs> to work in the quarry, you had to be certified as a miner. We had to do the, this like day long miner training. What? And it was, you know, the things that you do as a video artist. Sometimes you're like, did I do that? Yeah, I mean, okay. I'm, I'm heavy equipment certified. Like, right. All this random <laughs> shit. I'm like, I'm actually, I can do. Um, Rope access. I did a rope access course. <laughs> All right, exactly. There yeah. it is. So we're in this rock quarry. We've got uh, three channels of projection on the on the quarry wall that are making up our canvas. And I think the projectors were. I think there were two Ks. And so we're looking at it one night, and the audience was like, they were positioned about 150 feet away from the the surface. And we're looking at it at native resolution, and we're sweating bullets because we have got a tight deadline. I think we had like two weeks before the show opened. We had tried to do a bunch of media work before we got to the site, but we had never aligned on what the content and form was like. So we were stressed the fuck out. Like, how are we going to make this work? We don't know what the content's going to be. We don't know how we're going to sequence it. Really? Wait, wait, you didn't have your content set and you were going into the gig? Uh, we were two weeks away from opening. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we yeah. still had two weeks to finish. Right, right. And we were working with this experimental group that was really into this organic emergence of the artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan and I had both been like, you know, we have video to shoot and edit. We need to, like, have an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be improv up until a certain right, point. Right, but we need to bring <laughs> materials, man. Like, help us out. Yeah. And so we had we'd finally set up all the projection. We were blended. Uh, we had one big unified canvas. We were getting ready to dive into what we were going to shoot at it and end up putting in the show and confronting the fact that the resolution of it, we just didn't have enough computers that could render fast enough to get us where we needed to be. So was your was your pipeline, was it all coming out of a single machine or were mm-hmm. you doing like a network span across computers? We're only doing one machine. We had one media server driving the three projectors and then our control surface. Yeah. Um, but we were still, you know, not quite 6K across. And I was sitting next to Dan and I was like, okay, we played the like the uh, the same game you play at the eye doctor, right? It's like okay, A or B, <laughs> A or B, yeah, yeah, B or C, B or C, 
uh, B or, or C or A. <laughs> and what I was doing without him looking was I was turning down the resolution first by a half, then by a qu- then a quarter, and then an eighth. Right. And it wasn't until from the perspective of where the audience was to the surface, it wasn't until we were at that barrier between a quarter of the resolution and an eighth of the resolution that he could even tell that he could tell. Wow, that's a great great test. And in the end, man, that is the people get really caught up in like like spec. You know, it, people are so obsessed with like okay, 4K, 8K. It's like, well, let's figure out what is necessary to achieve the effect that we're going for. Exactly. And then, you know, it's like maybe you don't need a $15,000 CP, you know, computer to run this thing. Maybe you can do it on something of much less powerful or maybe you can do something three times complex with less resolution exactly and that was that you know ultimately that's where we landed because we're like okay like once we had that like eyeball test we're like great like we don't need anywhere near the resolution that we thought that we needed yeah and now all of a sudden there are a ton of doors that are open that we can explore and chase that what we was never the, thought what was the sh- like what was the, the effect like what was the content we so rock quarry is a really cool uh, venue man the rock quarry was wild the the piece was pitched as a sound poem about the history of the earth the geologic history of the earth oh perfect so it was all uh geologic formation it was there was volcanoes and colliding continents and there was an ice age and there was the emergence of man and an industrial age it was a dance performance it was i uh, i don't know what you call it it was like a <laughs> sound video lighting extravaganza experiment it, it was very experimental <laughs> Because it was uh, pro- like all projection, but there were zip lines that ran across the quarry. So there were performers that were what? on the zip lines. Wow. There were dancers that were on the ground. There was all sorts of lighting that was embedded all around the rock quarry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was all manner of bass and sound that was installed. So you said this was in New Hampshire. This is in Connecticut. In Connecticut. Was this part of your ASU experience or your keen experience? Uh, part of my ASU experience. It was in a summer where, you know, like you do, all of a sudden there are like 13 gigs that are lined up all in a row. And right. you're like, how are we going to make this work? Right. Because Dan and I, before that, Dan... Uh, had his thesis thesis project. We did a uh, a show called Wonder Dome. Yeah. Wonder Dome closed, and then we went to Mexico, and we did an installation for a projection festival, and then that wrapped, and we went to uh, Connecticut to do the show in the Rock Quarry, and then I went home for a hot second and then got called out to help assist on a job at (laughs) Comic-Con. And I went back and then Derivative called me and asked me to go out and hang out with them for a week to, like, get a better sense of what their place was like. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the summer was over, and I was like, what has just happened in my life? (laughs) Hang out. So at that point, were you already doing your tutorial series? I was. I had, you know, God bless Daryl Hux, one of my advisors uh, and close friends when I was living in New Hampshire, had made me promise that when I went to grad school that I would write about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't care what you do, but you have to document your work. Just document your work. Yeah. 
And at that that's point, that's wise, man. That's a, yeah. that's wisdom right there. It's like the smartest advice you can give anybody is just document your work. Yeah. It's like it doesn't doesn't even have to be phenomenal. Just like have some record of what you've done. When you think about like all the amazing things, the 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 diversity of what humans have done over the eons, and the only thing that carries on or carries any weight are the things that get documented. You got to write down. Got got to document it or it didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I promised Daryl that I would do that. And so a big chunk of my tutorial and writing series largely came out of the fact that I was just trying to keep up with what I was doing. And at that point, that was before Elber's book. It was before there were any really big series uh, about touch on the web. And so I was like, no one's writing about this. I can write about this. And, I'll, you know, whatever. I'm not afraid. I'll learn in public. Yeah. No, I think that's great, man. And it also gives people an insight into um, your thought process. I watched one of your videos. It's a, it's very, I, I understand why it became so popular. You know, it, it, you're easy to listen to. Your voice is like mildly hypnotic. <laughs> I was like watching, like, wow, this is so oh, yeah. fascinating. Oh, <laughs> chop top, top. Yeah, yeah. Daddy, that, that, chop top, yeah. top, 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 comp. It's a, you're a great teacher. And it's, um, you know, arguably that's kind of where that tutorial series is what allowed you to, like, you became famous from that in in certain in circles. Internet, yeah, like my yeah. internet famous is that little like little slice of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's why Obscura found you and snapped you up. They're like, yeah, who's this guy doing the tutorial series? Let's get him. He's obviously he, he knows, knows what he's doing. doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, and it's been strange because it's been bridges to lots of different people. And now I feel like I don't do nearly as many tutorials as I wish I that I could. I do try to write more because I what I found is that uh, more and more these days I want something that's written that I can skim quickly or stop and come back to yeah videos are sometimes harder to try and find your way through they are if you're trying to use a video as a, as a learning resource it's um, it's more engaging you can really like get your more engaging however it is harder in some regards to find specific information you know, quickly. Yeah. It's hard to search it. Yeah. Right? It is hard to search it. And there was a minute where I was like, Oh, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to like record a video and then I'll write a transcript of it and then I'll do screenshots. And I was like, if this was my full-time job and that was all I did, then yes, sure. I could do that. But there are not enough hours in the day. I'm a strong believer of different phases of your life are for different things, you know, and you did that. And that was like a bridge to where you are now. And you know, it's like, if you come back to it, if you feel compelled to do it, then do it, you know? Or, but if you yeah. don't, if there's other things that, you know, don't get stuck in one place. Just, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Those tutorials are going to live on in, in perpetuity. Oh you know, they're, they're there, man. It's on the internet. Yeah, it's on the internet. It's like a diamond. It's forever. <laughs> there it goes. Yeah. I do, I do want to go back at some point and do like an updated series. Because I realize, you know, it's so funny to watch some of those things. I'm like, oh, that's a terrible way to do that. Oh, God, no, don't do that. Past Matt, what the fuck were you what thinking? What were you doing? <laughs> Which is ironic. Like, any project that you open after you develop some domain expertise has that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Where you look back at it and you're like, what was I thinking? 
Like, who was that person that made this disorganized mess of a thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in many respects, I think that's actually really important to have moments where you can look back and go, oh, yeah, like, all of us have that kind of arc. It's yeah. easy to forget what it is to, to be a beginner when you're only focused on where you are in the present. That's a really interesting way to document your arc. Yeah. Right? And, and for you as a person, it's almost like journaling. Yeah, right? Where you're 100%. Like, oh, right, that's what I was thinking. That's where my skill set was at that point. Right, Yeah. okay, all right. I, the needle has moved. That's cool. Yeah. Huh. Man, I'm sure now doing? it's a... Uh, because you're still, right now, in Ad Obscura, you're... You're developing. You're you're touch developer. That's what you do. So my roles changed. It's actually been really interesting. When we were acquired by Madison Square Garden, uh, I moved from being a developer to being associate director of software. Uh, and since then, I've moved into a director position. Yeah. So I'm. I still do some uh, direct touch development these days, but largely I'm focused on strategy, direction, and trajectory for some of the bigger pieces that we were working on around MSG Sphere. So that's that's been a huge, crazy transition and maneuver to understand uh, what it is to go from being down in the thick of it to having a higher level perspective on how you're laying out some work and what's going to happen. Yeah. I want to rewind for a second. And uh, just for people who don't know, um, Obscura is like, has been one of the um, forerunners of projection mapping. They're like a company that has pushed the boundaries. They brought projection mapping continually to, to the next level multiple times. And um, you got plucked out of ASU to work for Obscura, correct? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And they were just like, you, they, they, their system, their projection mapping system was done in touch designer. Mm -hmm. So they've been, um, and how old are they? 15? Uh, let's see, when I joined Obscura in 2015, uh, that was Obscura's 15th birthday. Oh, wow. Okay. So they were, they would be 19 now. I guess about the time of our acquisition, they were 17 yeah. years old as a company. And they were like, um, for me, you know, they were always uh, an example of how this model could work. You know yeah. I mean, they were like, I was like, oh yeah, you can make a business doing these kind of like new media art installations. Obscura is doing it. So anytime I had doubts, I was like, no, just keep on going because if Obscura can do it, it's, it can, ha you know, you can do it. It's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that's what Obscura was to a lot of people. I think that's still what, what Obscura is to many of us that are still there is that it was this you know, North Star on the pirate seas of like the place that you could aim yourself towards. Yeah. The pirate seas of the new media arts. Yeah, exactly. It. Second star on the right, straight on till morning. You can get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard. There's not a lot of examples. Well, now there's more. There's much more now. But um, it's definitely not been an easy field to make a living. <sighs> It's a weird space. I and mean, I think it's an especially weird space because it, 
It's so, it's A, it's phenomenally expensive. All of it is expensive. Yeah. There is no part of it that's cheap. Uh, and you can cut corners, but you're often so sorry for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, I think that um, there's not a whole lot of, there hasn't been a whole lot of demand for really high budget new media art pieces because it's brand new. As, as a field um, there are not a lot of examples of how you can use it in a corporate space in a way that makes sense to the dollar counters you know the penny yep. penny pinchers exactly and um, yeah it's 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 just a brand new field well it's interesting I think one of Obscura's really right one of their flags that they planted pretty firmly was that they were largely in a position where they steered clients away from any kind of uh, purposeful or, I don't want to use the word ugly, um, but branding that was branding for the sake of branding. Yeah. We tried really hard not to be a company that did projection that was about brand identity. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's easy to make a billboard. It's hard right. to make a piece of beautiful art that is... I mean, in the end, all of this stuff is it's corporate branding, mm-hmm. right? It's like of it is a way to to set yourself apart as an entity, right? All of these mm-hmm. things, you know, whether it's um, the Taj Mahal, right, yep. or whether it's the Sydney Opera House. These are these are pieces that um, that differentiate your clients from their comp their competitors exactly you know but we spent a lot of time really being thoughtful about how can we you know let's include your brand colors or let's include a subtle nod to your uh, to your logo or some of the aesthetics that you have inside of your identity let's let's find subtle ways of reinforcing your identity without being totally garish or blatant exactly. in your face yeah man exactly. and that's the mark of a true artist when you can be subtle with your art and still make a huge splash um and that's that's like a you know i mean that's that's smart marketing you know yeah. it's, it's uh because then right then half of the allure is someone is walks away and they're like wait who did that who yeah. is that for oh, exactly. oh my god i need to know right. i need to search for this yeah yeah right you you generate as much enthusiasm and excitement by being a little mysterious as you do by being obvious obscure is a master of that so travis threckle when i met him right i was just like excuse me i was like this is a cool guy and like the whole identity of obscura is like a bunch of cool people that's like what they're it's a that's pirate their ship drop. Yeah. it's a pirate ship but it's full of like Jack Sparrow cool <laughs> fucking pirates man who are you oh my god you're doing what yeah okay. exactly Jesus and it, it's worked really well and it's been a, amazing to watch that like progress it's been like oh yeah like I said it's like oh, we have taken that and we have use that as our North Star in order to take our area of expertise, you know, which is LED and, and lighting within architecture. We're like, no, 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 we have to keep it artistic. We got to keep it stylized. We've got to, you know, make sure that these are art pieces first and, you know, corporate branding second or yeah. whatever. Well, and that's, right, that's also a vision of a world that's 
that doesn't quite yield to corporate masters. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, we are, this is a terrible analogy, but I think it is strangely appropriate is that if you think of, if you rewind, you know, many years and you think about how we achieved uh, the absurd pieces of architecture in places like Italy and France that are largely funded by and operated by the church, Mm -hmm. right? There was monarchies and religion that bankrolled these pieces and got to decide what it was to make big pieces of public art in the form of architecture and sculpture. And the new media space is similarly positioned, only our masters happen to be corporate entities. Well, there's always patrons. Yeah. You know, there's always patrons. We have, uh, Digital Ambience has grown through a series of patrons of the arts, you know, and they're people who are just like, oh yeah, that's nifty. And like, they have the means and they're like, yeah, you know, do something cool. And it's, uh, it's very similar. I feel like the arts in this, this time period, right? They're very much, it, it's a similar model to like when Da Vinci or, you know, Michelangelo was, uh, you know, they were doing their, their work. They were funded by patrons. And it's like, we all know those artists. We don't know who their patrons were, but there were patrons. And they were like, yeah, paint this chapel, you know, create these works of art. And here's the money to do it. You don't have to worry about feeding yourself. Just do what you do. And I, I feel like that's that's a very similar... Mm-hmm. P.S. Please include God. Yes. P.S. Should be white. Should be a white dude. That would be can preferable. You just, can you just brand this with God? Come on, please? come on. Just God branded. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great. I love it. I love it. All white folk. Yes. Excellent. Right. Check. There you go. I mean, there's always... You know, there are always, and I feel like that's part of the creativity, right? Is like taking those boundaries and playing with them. Right. How do you push on that? Yeah. Where do you subvert that? Right. That's part of being an artist is like, because we, we all have, it's, it's almost, it's counterproductive to have no boundaries. Right. You know, it's not like I do the best work when I have, when I'm trying to think with creatively within a set of boundaries, whether those are technical or financial or like theological or like, you know, uh, yeah. You need lines. You do need lines. Blank pages are much harder to illustrate yeah. than pages that have some form of constraint. Yeah, absolutely. Because you get to take creative advantage of those. Yeah, absolutely. So... Obscura happened, working for Obscura, you kind of went with them through their merger, and then it was at MSG, Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden Company. Purchased Obscura. Correct. In 17 or 18? I think technically it was 17. I think it was November of 17. Yeah. Because um, it's been about a year and a half now, I think, of that transition. Um, that's been a dramatic transition it seems like for for you and for I know uh, like Jojo Jojo was uh, he, he was just he was like there he was uh, in systems yeah yeah systems mm-hmm. engineering one of the systems engineers yeah he's cool man I like I like him a lot he's a wild human <laughs> he's a wild human but I've known him for a long long time I knew him when he was at uh, Elemental LED mm-hmm. way back in the day um 
but yeah, people are spinning off and they're going off doing their own thing. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a part of any. It it's such a curious experience. Uh, I feel like out of this, I have found more people that have been through similar uh, either purchases, acquisitions, mergers, all different flavors of what that looks like. Uh, and it's curious to hear similar stories about tumultuous, tumultuous integrations, how cultures have, you know, where folks have planted or drawn lines, what alliances get made, how that shakes out and levels out over time. And I think, I think we're close to the settling of some of the most destabilizing pieces. Mm. And we'll see what that means kind of moving forward. So MSG is over in New York. You guys are here in San Francisco. Is, did that merger, like, was, is there a lot of MSG influence? Well, Madison Square Garden is interesting because it's, uh, as an organization, uh, most often it's associated with the garden proper, but it's actually a entertainment company that has a number of uh, properties, both in the sports uh, scene as well as in the venue scene. So mm-hmm. the Coliseum, uh, Radio City Music Hall, Madison Square Garden, uh, a handful of other locations, and then the Knicks, the... Oh, I don't know any of the teams. Shame on me. Uh, I've been a bad acquired person. Um, (laughs) But there's a a handful of sports teams and there's a handful of properties. And so as a umbrella company, it's really in this venue, largely venue management, entertainment management kind of space. Yeah. And so I think the hardest reconciliation is the culture and spirit of a small, agile studio that's focused almost exclusively on boundary breaking and ideological challenging activities and how that fits into a larger organization that is about stability, consistency, and uh, reliable execution. Not to mention, New York is a very traditional business environment. You know, I noticed that time and time again, where, you know, you go to New York, you hang out with people, and, like, even studios in New York, they're very... (laughs) It's like tight laced. I don't know how to explain it. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a very conservative culture. Suits. Yeah. Ties. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Tight tall shoes. That's right. <laughs> exactly. It and is a very, culturally, it's very different. I think that's, that has been the hardest part of our integration is figuring out how and where the spirit of Obscura fits into this crazy you know, big identity that is Madison Square Garden Company. And have they been, um, have, have they made their culture, have they been applying their culture or trying to apply their culture to Obscura or have they left you guys kind of to do your own thing? Has it been heavy handed or has it been hands off, you know? Uh, I don't know the right way to categorize it. It's... I think at times it's felt like it's what's a good I'm trying to think of like a good analogy or good parable for it. Um, 
it's almost like ships passing in the night, right? It's almost like we've done all the right things in the wrong phase. Mm. We're like out of phase with one another in how we're trying to line up and synchronize our efforts. Yeah. And so it's, you know, too much effort, either too late or too soon. And I think that's happened on both sides of this equation as we've tried to understand who we are in this transition and how we reorganize ourselves, as well as how that lines up with the needs and focuses of this much larger entity. And so the main mission of like Obscura with Madison Square Garden is the dome, right? Yeah. You guys are, it's, it's for people who don't know, it's, um, it's a massive venue and it is a huge immersive dome. Like it's a stadium sized dome. MSG Sphere, there's two locations. There's one in Las Vegas and one in London. And both are uh, 18, 16 to 18,000 seats for the venue. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a, a silly acreage of media playing. It's gargantuan. So it's a huge dome that's completely seamlessly covered in projection, which creates an environment where you can stick like 10,000 people, five, whatever it is, thousands of people mm-hmm. into this environment and play immersive content and have immersive experiences. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Experiential exactly. shows. It's a, it's a really cool idea. It's a preposterous undertaking. What a gamble. Holy cow. It, it, you know, it's one of those... It's an interesting endeavor in that it is... Uh, even for a person that understands this industry, it is simultaneously terrifying. <laughs> like, how could this work? Uh, and exciting because it's... It does really challenge our notions of what's immersion, how big is too big, uh, how do we navigate and negotiate a performance inside of a media space that's that big? What will it mean to create a venue that's that enormous and how will we build relationships both with fellow audience members and with performers? What will that even look like? So what's the resolution of this? Like, what are we talking? You know, like, it's what's the the tile? <laughs> like, what's the tile space? Or uh, let's see here. I'm I don't know if there's officially a. If you can't talk about it, that's yeah, fine too. I'm trying to. I don't know if there's a resolution that I can talk about yet yeah, for yeah. the interior space. Right. What I could say is that it's. Uh, it's large enough that a single frame of footage that uncompressed is uh, close to a gigabyte. Holy shit. So you're, I mean, it really is like a, a petabyte style format in terms of when wow, you start to think dude, about. That's, that is insane. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. How will we do it? How will we shoot it? How will we edit it? How will we sequence it? How will we deliver it and master it? Oh my God. (gasps) Oh no. But at the same time, right, that's, that's also right at the cusp of what we're trying to understand in this hungry media space. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, I mean... Well, it's pushing the boundaries, man. That's a great technical challenge. Right. Talk about... How are you going to do it? Yeah, talk about an engineering challenge. It's like, all right figure this out and here's, <laughs> here's all the resources you need to do it 
now just figure out how it's possible. Exactly. Riddle me this. (laughs) I like those challenges, though, man. That's that's why um, I feel like the, the cream of our industry end up at the borders of those technical challenges you know that that's like pushing the envelope in our little slice mm-hmm. of of knowledge right we're pushing that yeah. that envelope out it's very cool that's a really cool challenge well, it's a wild one that's for sure yeah yeehaw oh my goodness so you're you're basically working on the system to drive that Yes, that's a large part of what we're focused on is how on earth do you orchestrate all the pieces that work in there? How do you program that? What's the pipeline for getting content in? When you start to think about a content program on a media space that's that's that large, what does that mean for third parties? How on earth do you do a concert in there? How do you do a conference in there? How do you make sure that a client that's coming to this space doesn't need two years of lead time to be able to render what they're gonna make for it. What does a render pipeline for that kind of surface even mean or look like? Can you play PowerPoint? <laughs> Don't worry, you can play your keynote. Can, can, you, do your, can you do your PowerPoints? <laughs> so it's, you know, there's a huge number of opportunities to explore, which I think is, is probably one of the pieces that's most inspiring and exciting about it. Um, and it, there's also huge challenges about when, if you think about what this means for this media space, what happens when it gets bigger? I mean, my joke uh, at Obscura was always anytime Travis had an idea about projectors internally, I would always add one more zero to whatever number he told me. Yeah. Because that's the system that you had to design. Right. If you wanted to do 20 channels, we have to design something for 200 channels <sighs> because by the time this job is over, the next job is going to be at least double. Right. If not triple the projector count. So one of the beauty, one of the, the great parts about the system that you guys use at Obscura though, is it's a, it's a scalable framework, right? It's a, it's a scalable system where you can add more computers and theoretically indefinitely, right? Yeah. We, uh, our last, the last really big job that I worked on, uh, MGM Kotai, we, we had this great challenge. So there's, uh, it's this big interior atrium, atrium space in a, a casino in Macau. And we wanted media to be able to flow seamlessly from one LED surface to the next and respect the uh, physical space that was between the screens. Mm. So I wanted the screens to behave as if they were cutouts into a virtual world that was hidden behind the real world. Yeah. So if you unwrapped the screens and took into account all of the extra architecture that was in the way, you know, what's that UV unwrapped look like? Mm-hmm. Well, that looked like 64,000 lateral pixels. Right. Uh, awesome. Cool. Oh, geez. Uh, perfect. And like 30 and change vertical. Yeah. So we spent a, a big chunk of our effort understanding how we could distribute the rendering for that across 
as many machines as we wanted. Um, and we landed on an approach that would mean that the same mechanism would work for five, you know, five displays, could work for a hundred displays, could work for a thousand displays. We could scale as, as high and as far as the network bandwidth would allow us to stream the information between them. Yeah. And so that's where it got really interesting and exciting was that all of a sudden the notion that there were boundaries around how big you could make something disappeared. See, so that is where I really love that paradigm. It's very focused on architecture. So taking a model of a, of a piece of architecture, right, 3D model, and then adding displays of many different types, whether that's pixels and LEDs, or whether that's screens, and using those screens as virtual windows within your 3D model, and then generating 3D content to play back over those surfaces. It's a volumetric. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool way to think about playing back content in a space. It's not about a two-dimensional video. It's about three-dimensional effects that are rendering through your displays. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's that intersection of, it's the blurring of what's the phys- physical world, what's the virtual world. Yes. How do we seamlessly transition and navigate between those? Yes. And that to me is like, I think that's where we're going to go. That's the interesting future is. Well, there's only a few systems that will do that, right? And and Touch Designer, I've seen a number of systems developed in Touch Designer that treat content that way. We use a system uh, out of France called Smode. It's a it's another it's like Notch, mm-hmm. right? It's a it's a three D environment. It's um, it's like Cinema Four D or Three D Studio Max with the ability to pixel map mm-hmm. or um, yeah it's a it's a very very cool system and I think that's the future of D3 kind of does it but with D3 you you can't you can't create truly volumetric content it's still stuck in the two-dimensional paradigm where you create flat surfaces you display your flat content on the flat display surfaces and for us you know we don't we're not playing videos, we're doing like volumetric pixel mapping, yeah. which is very low resolution, but those pixels are, it's like a point cloud mm-hmm. in 3D space. So it's not about a video, it's about create a particle effect that flows through it's these. It's about a world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it's becoming more and more of like a, like a game engine. Yeah. So you gotta take your game engine, create your like 3D tornado particle effect, and run that through your point cloud of pixels. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Rad. That's what... I want that. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's, I think, you know, it opens up a number of different interesting questions and challenges because if we understand how to do it in three dimensions, then we can explore ideas about how does time intersect with this. Yeah. Right? What does it mean when uh, you can capture what's happened in a space over time, replay it back through that that virtual environment, and you have a historical map of uh, events, happenings. You have a whole different way of capturing the world, just, you know, sharing information. Yeah, well, the, the whole 3D camera thing, right? I think that's changing the way that's, that's an essential component to how we create content for these environments. 
because these environments are intrinsically three-dimensional, right? It's uh, three-dimensional and then a video played over that becomes four-dimensional, mm -hmm. right? So it's like you've got your, um, yeah, you need a three-dimensional camera in order to create content for these environments. Yeah. That's, you know, the world is a weird place. I always, I like saying that the, the future is weird. That's weirder than you expect it to be. Yeah. Because yeah. it'll only get stranger. <laughs> For sure, it'll get stranger. Yeah. So do you see your work going into that that direction? Are you excited about pushing things forward? Oh, yeah. Direction? I mean, I'm, I'm really curious and excited about intersections of traditional forms new form and new forms and i'm i really love where we're going with aware spaces with the what aware spaces spaces that are cognizant oh, yeah. of you responsive right. to you uh, i think that's going to be you know how we integrate with the internet of things and what our what the world knows about us and what we know about the world and how we move through that i think will be really interesting yeah man I'm uh, working on a project right now where we're integrating the, the BMS the building management system mm -hmm. into uh, our system we just got access to that data it's like alright great now we know what rooms are occupied at what time so we can play with that mm -hmm. right and even simple simple sensors oh yeah you can do a lot with that so it's just tying in or grabbing data from the building management system allows you to create really cool effects with architectural installations that span across multiple rooms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's, right, it's a strange thing to want a world that feels uh, like it's living with you, but I think that's, right, part of the human desire, part of what we miss is that our connection to nature, to living things that we're a part of. And I think in a lot of ways we're, we're pushing our technology and its integration in our lives to be mirrors and mimics of some of those pieces that we're missing.